that I have lost my mind because the sermon series we're beginning this morning is a study through 1 Thessalonians. But looking in your bulletin, you find that our text this morning comes from the book of Acts. Now doesn't that seem like the most common sense place to begin a study of the book of 1 Thessalonians, Acts chapter 16. I'm glad you all thought that that made a bunch of sense and didn't have any questions about that this morning. So since you all understand what was going through my mind as we prepared the bulletin and to the sermon series and everything that comes along with that, I won't spend any time explaining that. You'll just have to stick around and find out. I do want to ask... As we look ahead to the end of another year and the beginning of a new one, I want to ask you a few questions. Are you satisfied with your relationship with God? Do you know God's direction for your life in the coming year? Do you know how to discern God's will for your life? Three questions I just want to plant in your minds this morning as we turn to our text. The reason for that is our society seems to, on great, uh, at a great measure or great degree, value being practical and being functional. I don't know if it truly values seeking God's will and discerning the things that God has for us. You know, one of the things that Scripture teaches us is that when we follow God's will, there will be people, including godly people, that look at us and say, I'm not sure where you got that direction. But you know what? That's all right. As Christians, we're not called to serve or to live in such a way that we please man, but we're called to live so that we please God. How do we accomplish that? We can only accomplish that if we know God's will in our life and we know how He's leading and directing us and if we are obedient and persistent and faithful to walk in His ways. Our text is an example of that. So why don't we look at the Bible this morning? Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 16 where we will be looking at verse 6. I think the bulletin says through verse 15, but we're going to stop at verse 11. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 16, verse 6 through 11. Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us understanding this morning as we turn to your word, that you would help us not only to understand what is taking place in your word, but Lord, that we would understand the example that is there for us to follow or the example that exists for us to avoid. God, I pray that we would see your promises and that we would take courage in those things and that we would be obedient to walk according to your will in our lives. Help us, Lord, as we discern the truth found in your word, that we might be able to behold the awesome truth found therein. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Bible says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. 
So, passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis. It's a self-explanatory portion of Scripture. I'm not sure uh, how to preach it. One of the things that's helpful in looking at this text is remembering what's going on in the book of Acts. The book of Acts records the story of the apostle of the apostles and the early church after Jesus left and ascended into heaven. How did the church grow? Now, this is truly a phenomenon when you think about how the early church began to expand in the world. It started in the Middle East, it expanded to Asia, it expanded to Europe, and all of these churches began to take shape and to form as people met together and they worshipped God together. The Apostle Paul was formerly an early persecutor of the church. He led the charge in persecuting Christians in the first century. Nevertheless, through a miraculous intervention by Jesus Christ, through appearing to him in a vision, the Apostle Paul became one of the greatest church planners in all of church history. As a matter of fact, I think an answer for missions today, the way that we serve in missions and our expectations of church plants and even the way that churches operate today necessitate and need to go back to following the Apostle Paul's model for ministry instead of everything that's come up in the last 2,000 years. With that being said, the Apostle Paul made his first missionary a journey through the areas of Asia, and he came back to Jerusalem, and he went back to Antioch, and he found that there was a dispute among Christians. Can you believe Christians didn't agree on every issue? Now, as I was studying and looking at the book of Acts, I was genuinely taken aback. I was so surprised. These Christians in the first century that had literally been a part of seeing Jesus crucified, ascend into heaven, that have been maybe second generation recipients of the faith, they came together, they're meeting regularly, they're sharing all things, and they just couldn't agree on every little detail. The main issue of dispute for the early church, if we went back to Acts chapter 15, was what were the obligations necessary in order to become a Christian? I told you, and kind of warned you about this in the introduction, one of the things that we do in seeking to be practical and functional is we overvalue what it means to please man. You know, we have some expectations for what it means to be a Christian. Some of those aren't necessarily found in the Bible. That's an opportunity for Christians to reevaluate what we value, reprioritize what we think is the most important thing. One of, well, I won't even give it an example for that, out of fear of offending someone. But the reality is what the Bible tells us to do is to seek God's priorities and to allow those to become our own. And if we're going to do a good job at doing that, you know what we have to do? We have to set aside what was our priority, what was our value, 
to make room for what is God's. The main issue for the church in Jerusalem was whether or not Gentiles had to follow Jewish customs in order to be Christians. There was some dispute. We call it the Jerusalem Council. And what resulted was a resolution that the only obligation to be a Christian was faith in Jesus Christ. I hope that precept stands today. Is that the only thing that somebody needs to do in order to come to Jesus Christ and receive salvation is simply to believe that He has died for them, that He is the God, that He is not only the Son of God, but He is God in the flesh incarnate among man, that He has oneness and unity with God, that He died as the penal substitution. That means He died for our, as payment for our sins so that we would not have to pay that price ourselves. And that anyone that places their faith in Him does not receive the just punishment that they deserve, but instead the merciful grace of God that gives them everlasting life with Jesus. See, Apostle Paul is a part of this dispute He takes news to Antioch and he begins to go through different regions in the Asia Minor area. What we would look on a map today and see as modern day Turkey. But what does he do now? He's already made one missionary journey. What does he do now? Well, the Apostle Paul's not done. He's not done. He's not ready to be done because, well, God's not called him home yet. Sometimes we make the error of thinking God's done with us a little too early. In his second missionary journey, the Apostle Paul with his, um, at this time I believe only Timothy, no, Silas is with him, and he meets up with uh, Timothy later on, but he's marching through these regions, and you have it on the map, these arrows aren't mine. You can tell because they're graphically appealing. Let me show you what my arrows look like. First thing that the apostle and Silas wanted to do was to go into Asia. They wanted to head southwest. Most likely that means that they wanted to go to the smaller corner in modern day Turkey, which is Ephesus. We know a lot about the church in Ephesus, don't we? We studied last year, or maybe it was two years ago, the entire book of Ephesians. Everything that the apostle Paul had to say to the church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So he wanted to go to Ephesus. He wanted to turn around and march further south. But he wasn't able to do that, was he? The Bible says, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. It's in verse 6. The Apostle Paul had a clear vision He had ambition. He had desires. All of these things that he wanted to put together in order to go into this region called Asia. He wanted to go to Ephesus. And can we be honest? His desires and his ambition, they were noble and honorable things. He wanted to preach the word in Asia. Who could say no to that? He wanted to plant a church. He wanted to continue to propagate the gospel that had been entrusted to him. How many of you would say no to the Apostle Paul? 
If you were on some missionary uh, interview board or if our church was preparing to send a missionary and the Apostle Paul, remember here, he stood up and he said, Church, I, I would like to go to Asia. Well, he has the credentials. Well, he, I think he has the ability. He's certainly proven himself worthy. He's already been on one missionary journey. I think he can handle this. So he has the competency. Credentials and competency. Aren't those the only things that matter in life? But the Holy Spirit said no. God said that it was not the right time, it was not the right place, that He didn't have the right people, that even with the right experience, even with the right credentials, even with the right competency, the Apostle Paul was forbidden. Look at the word there in the text. It doesn't just say that he wouldn't let him. was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. It turns out, it doesn't matter if we have the right credentials, the right competencies. If we're not seeking God's will in our life, we will be inhibited. We will be held back. We will be told no. Why? Because the, God's will is actually more important than our desires. Even when our desires and our ambitions are good and noble. Paul would eventually find himself in Ephesus, but he needed to go through some things. This is what Acts really tells us the story of. And actually, it all begins to make sense how this is a study of 1 Thessalonians because one of the places that Paul needs to go to, he's only there, some scholars say, less than three weeks and he planted a church in Thessalonica. I think he was there a little longer than three weeks, but it wasn't a long time. Can you imagine planting a church in a month to two months and then leaving them? Like fully organizing a congregation, getting all the documents together. Think about everything that goes into planting a church today, right? We have to have a constitution. We have to have bylaws and blah, 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 and stuff. I don't know. Maybe this is stuff that's extra biblical. Look at the Apostle Paul's model. He needed to go through some stuff before he could get to Ephesus, the place where he spends the longest amount of time out of all three of his missionary journeys. He spends up to three years in Ephesus, but before he got there, he needed to go to Philippi. He had a great time in Philippi, didn't he? The Word of God was well received in Philippi. No, they tried to kill him in Philippi. He ran away. He had to go to, First Thessalon or he had to, go to Thessalonica. This area in Macedonia, maybe the capital city. He had a great time in Thessalonica. The word was received well in Thessalonica, but he was only able to stay there for a couple of months. Why? Because the Jews ran him out. So he went to Berea, just a little bit further south, a place of great encouragement, a place where the Bible says the Bereans were more honorable than the saints in Thessalonica because what did the Bereans do? They contended with the Word of God. Here comes this man with credentials and experience and he reads to them the Word and, and what do the Bereans do? They say, this is great stuff. Let's check it. And they would go to where they had the scriptures, and they would open them up and they would test what the Apostle Paul had said to them. And they said, 
this is all lining up. This Jesus guy really was supposed to come and, and he was actually supposed to die. And you know what? He is God's son. And you know what? I think the Apostle Paul's not telling me baloney, but he's actually telling me truth. But the people who ran him out of Thessalonica heard about it and they came down to Berea and they kicked him out. And so they ran him out of Berea. So Paul went to Athens. A great place for ministry. A great place for ministry. These people are so interested and intelligent and they don't get bored whenever Paul uses big words and and they're interested in what he has to say and he even gets a hearing at the Areopagus and he gets to go there and he gets to proclaim to them the gospel. And these really smart people say, we'll hear from you maybe later. He goes through all of this so he experiences what it means to be ran out of a city. So he begins to value what it means when God works in people's hearts and not him. So that when he finally winds up in Ephesus, the place he wanted to go to begin with, he values that ministry enough to stay with him. I wish... Seeking God's will in our life was easy. I wish I could simply text my father and say, what's next? You know, it is almost that easy. (laughs) The Apostle Paul was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. So verse 7 says, They went up through Mycenae, and they wanted to head north into this region called Bithynia. They couldn't go southwest, so they might as well go north. Verse 7 keeps going. It says, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. I should have added sound effects to this wonderful slide. The Spirit of Jesus told them they couldn't go. They've been turned down twice. His intentions are still honorable. He's still noble in character. He still has all the right credentials. But God, again, forbids him to go. I wish I knew what it meant when it says that the Holy Spirit forbade him to speak the word and when it says that the Spirit Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. I wish I could totally just extrapolate exactly what that meaning was. Was it circumstance? Was it conviction? What was it? How did the Apostle Paul get to this place where he was, I think, so sensitive to the Spirit that he recognized that he wasn't supposed to go to these places? How did we get here? I think it's possible that there were circumstances. But I think I'm reading too much into the text. That simply tells us that the Spirit forbade and that the Spirit of Jesus did not allow. I think the Apostle Paul was more sensitive to the Spirit than we allow ourselves to be today. When I look at the way that the Spirit guided Paul, didn't allow him to go southwest, didn't allow him to go north, how do we develop this sort of sensitivity to the Spirit? I started thinking about this, and I apologize. The following points don't come directly from the text, but I promise they're biblical. 
In fact, I've preached on these points so many times that this should really be really, really, really boring for the congregation that's here this morning. What happens next? The Apostle Paul was sensitive to the Spirit. I asked you in the introduction, do you know God's will for your life in the coming year? How do you know you're seeking God's will for your life? Wouldn't it be nice if we just had a dashboard in front of us so we're on course or off course? You know, it comes down to a very simple thing. When we delight ourselves in the Lord, He gives us the desires of our heart. That means you can trust the desires of your heart. You want it, God wants it for you. Only if you are allowing yourself to delight in the Lord. When I'm driving my car, there's different gauges that appear in front of me that help me to know what the car is doing and how I'm handling it. There's three gauges that I think are the most important, including the temp gauge, but we're not going to talk about that. First one is the RPM. Now, don't you think that's an important gauge in your car? Normally, we neglect that one. In fact, most of us don't pay much attention to it at all. Can I tell you something? If the RPM's on zero, the car is off. It never sits on zero while the car is running. You know what RPM stands for? How many of you know what RPM stands for? That's right. It, it, stands, it, it stands for reading, praying, and memorizing. <laughs> we become sensitive to the Word of God by looking at those RPMs, and that's how do we read, pray, and memorize the Word of God. We have to develop as Christians an appetite for the Word of God. If we don't have an appetite for the Word of God, the engine's off. We're not going to be able to see God's will for our life. We're going to be driving with the headlights off. Likewise, you could be like me, and you can make the mistake that I believe I've made the past two years and try to read so much Bible, pray so much Bible, memorize so much Bible, that you don't actually spend time with God, but you obligate yourself to do these disciplines, or I would say practices, since discipline's a bad word, and your RPMs are too high, and you're working really hard, but you're not getting really far. We have to develop an appetite for the Word of God. We have to pursue righteousness in our life. That's that mild MPH gauge, right? Everyone knows what MPH stands for? On your dashboard, when you're driving your car, what's MPH stand for? That's right, measuring, practicing, and honoring. That's good. You guys know all of these acronyms already. That's very good. Third, we have to maintain an awareness of what God's of God's person and presence in our lives. 
I think if we do these three things, we're on the right track to become more sensitive to the Spirit, to be able to discern God's will for our life, to be able to know what He wants for us in the coming year, and to be able to pursue God's plan, not only for our life, but the way He wants to use us to bless the regions around us, our neighbors, our friends. This last one is a fuel gauge. Because it turns out if you're not aware of God's presence in your life, it doesn't matter how hard you're trying or how far you think you're going. It's not going to end pretty soon. And everyone knows what fuel stands for, right? Frequency, understanding, expectation, and listening. I gave you these acronyms. Let's break them down. First one was RPMs. I said that we need to be reading the Word. Reading the Word of God. This is the easiest one for us to neglect because we look at reading the Bible and we say that it's so unapproachable. It's something we would never do. What does it mean to simply read the Word of God? Why should Christians read the Word of God? Because it's what gives us understanding of God's will. I've said it once. I've probably said it a thousand times. A lot of us spend a lot of effort trying to pray more. I think prayer is a very important thing especially as a spiritual practice. But if you spend your entire time praying to God without reading His Word, you're having a one-directional conversation, and at the end of the day, what you have to say matters less than what God has to say. Read God's Word. We stand around and we say, I'd like God to speak to me. I'd like Him to tell me what's coming up in my life. I'd like Him to tell me what His will is. I'd like to simply send my father a text so that he could give me direction. God's already spoken to you. But when we neglect this, we simply say with words, I'd like to hear from Him without actually turning to Him. I'm not going to try to make you feel guilty. I'm not going to try to convince you that you need to read your Bible. I can tell you that unless the engine's on, the car will not go anywhere. You need to read the Word of God. Second, you need to pray the Word of God. You really want to know what a powerful prayer is? We'd say they're the things that come from the heart. They're the things that are our deepest uh, uh, opening ourselves up to God, humbling ourselves before God. You know what the most amazing prayers are? They're when we delight ourselves in the Lord so much that our prayer resembles Scripture more than our own will. When I pray before I open up the Word, I pray, Lord, open the eyes of my heart that I might behold the wonderful truth found in your law. You all thought I was saying that because I thought it was poetic. It turns out if you turn to Psalm 118, verse 19, it says, Open the eyes of my heart, O Lord, that I might behold the wonderful truth found in your law. I'm praying God's Word back to Him because He's already told me it's powerful. He's already told me that this is what He wants. And if my will aligns with Him, and I truly mean that in my heart, when I pray back to God His Word, He's already told me He's going to answer that Word, hasn't He? Because He's already given it to me in His Word. I need to pray God's Word back to Him. I'm not just making this stuff up. It turns out this has been the spiritual practice for Israel going back really to the beginning. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Remember what that chapter is? The Shema. 
earliest passage of Scripture that a Hebrew boy would learn. Probably the first thing that Jesus was ever taught to memorize. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. The Lord our God is one. Love Him with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. Why was this important to memorize? Why does the chapter command the Israelites to take the Scripture and to bind it on their forehead, to wrap it around their arms? Why does He give them this Word and tell them to memorize it? Because if we rise up and we speak the Word of God, if we sit down and we speak the Word of God, if we walk by the street and the Word of God is on our hearts and this is what we're praying to God, don't you see how that's going to help you pursue His will in your life? We need to pray the Word of God. We need to memorize it. We need to memorize the Word of God. In children's church and children's programs, we place a lot of emphasis, maybe Galileans even. Our young boys, I think, spend a lot of time memorizing the Word of God and they get tested on this and we find out if they're actually memorizing it and can they, do they understand it. And then... Our students turn 16 and there's absolutely zero emphasis put on it. We turn into adults. When's the last time you dedicated yourself to memorizing Scripture? Now, I know this isn't true, but can I tell you what your actions really reflect about what you believe? When we have children memorize the Word of God, it's because we're just trying to pass the time with them. Why do we have children memorize the Word of God? Because we believe that the Bible says that when we store the Word of God in our heart, that it guides us and directs us, that it is a lamp unto our feet. And we believe with earnestness, with Truth, that when we teach children to memorize the Word of God, though they might depart from us, they will be guided by God's truth. And there's nothing more important for them. Is it any surprise that generations have grown up and left the church only to call these people that cared so deeply for them hypocrites when they don't spend time Memorizing the Word of God for themselves. The reason we should memorize the Word of God is because the Bible tells us to. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. We should memorize Scripture. All of these things, these are our RPMs. Reading, Praying, memorizing. These are the things that tell us that the engine is on, that we're spending time with God, that we're engaged with Him, that we're sensitive to the Spirit. But you know, there's another gauge on that dashboard that's important. This is the one you all like to look at. Don't you want to go fast? I tell you, my ambition sometimes gets in the way, similar to the way Paul's did. His ambition to go to Ephesus got in the way of pursuing God's will. And I would like to be closer to God than I am. I can't stop saying that. In fact, the day that I stop saying that's a bad day. Don't you want to go fast? 
We've got to look at the MPH. This is how we pursue righteousness in our lives. Because it's not enough that we study the Word of God, that we read it, that we memorize it, that we pray it. It's not enough that we spend time in the Word if we're not applying it to our lives. This is what easily gets neglected. We need to be measuring our lives according to the Word. That's what the M stands for. We need to measure what righteousness means by what God says. We need to set aside our values and our desires and let the Bible be the measuring stick that we use to engage with our life. It is the only guide of truth. Your heart's wicked and deceitful above all things. We need the Word of God to guide us. We have to practice the Word. It's not enough to speak the speak and do the talk, but we have to do what it says. The book of Joshua, very opening lines of verse 8. God tells Joshua, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you will meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. We have to be faithful in applying the Word of God to our lives. Not just using it as the measuring stick that says that we've fallen short. Turns out, if you read the Bible, you'll find out we have all fallen short of the glory of God. It's not just the measuring stick of expectation, but it is the goal of expectation. We have to apply it. I'll give you some very practical hints since our society values practicality and functionality so much. You want to know how to get good at applying Scripture to your life? Write down what you're going to do. Not just what you're going to do. Write down when you're going to do it. Turns out when you make a plan, you're more likely to do things. I think it's a good Bible application to say that I want to be more faithful. I want to be more faithful to read my Bible. How am I going to do that, though? I'm surprised how often when asking this question, people stare back at me like they have no idea what I'm saying. I want to be more faithful in reading my Bible. How do you be more faithful in reading your Bible? I'm getting the stare. Allow me to demonstrate. Is everyone looking? You read your Bible. So you come up with a plan. When are you going to read your Bible? Maybe it's in the morning. Maybe it's in the evening. You make a plan and you do it. You know, spiritual things are practices and disciplines. They don't have to be so complicated that they don't resemble the things that we're already used to in our life. Some of us make goals to be healthy and fit. Do you know how you get healthy and fit? You make a plan. What are you going to do? I'm going to change the way that I eat. So you eat healthier. Maybe you understand the way that food works. You make a plan. You want to uh, become more fit. So you want to go to the gym. So when are you going to go to the gym? On your way to work? On your way home? If you don't come up with a plan like this, these are just ideas floating out in the ether. And they're not any closer to becoming the real deal than, than, than they were before you even came up with the idea. 
We have to apply the Word of God to our life. Second, I mean third, you have to honor the Word. Isn't this strange? We have to honor the Word. And this is the tough one for young Christians. Because they say, I get it. I'll be more spiritual if I read the Word and pray it and memorize it and if I measure myself according to it and I practice it. But you know, none of that matters if you don't honor the Word of God as the Word of God. If you say this is just some book, if this just these are good ideas that have been passed down for a long time, it really doesn't matter because you don't even understand what you're looking at. We have to honor the Word of God and turn to it with reverence and say that this is the inspired, breathed out, infallible truth that has been poured to human poured out to humanity through the special intervention of God by carrying men along by the Holy Spirit that they would write down these words that it would be written not just by men throughout history, but that it's written by a divine author, God Himself. If I don't look at this and I don't say, why would God, who knows everything and is all-powerful, why would He put all of this together? And if I don't look at it and I don't see that He's had a plan since the very beginning to love you, this Word of God doesn't mean much, does it? What makes it mean much is who it's from and why He wrote it. I would even say that these 66 books are God's love letter to you and I. Not just a general love letter. He's not taking out an ad in the classified sections of the newspaper. He's taking an envelope and He put your name on it and He put your address on it and He's sending it to you. That's why we read it. And finally, the most important gauge in our car determines how far we're going to go. It's our fuel gauge. How do we maintain an awareness of God's presence in our lives? This one's short. I know some of you are scared because the others have been three, three letters and this one's four. This one's pretty short. It's how frequently we think about God. How frequently are we praying to Him? How frequently are we considering the things that we've studied in the Word? You know, the Bible tells us that we should rejoice always and pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. In fact, this is relevant to our study in 1 Thessalonians because that passage comes from 1 Thessalonians. This church that Paul spent a little less than a month with, this is what he told them to do. You want to figure out how a church can be planted in less than a month? It's how frequently we are thinking and aware that God is guiding us. Do we understand life's circumstances through the lens of what God has given us? After planting a church in less than a month, two issues came up. The first one was that the Jews kept trying to demoralize or deject what the Apostle Paul's authority was. The bigger issue was that there was a dispute in the church in Thessalonica concerning last things. Fortunately, Christians today are pretty united and all agree on, on what comes at the end. We don't even agree on that in the same church. Do we agree on the important things, though? Do we agree that the reason that God allows things to happen in our life 
is because he has a plan that's bigger than you and I. Are we able to look at suffering in this world and to have understanding that God is still at work, that he has not left us or abandoned us? Do we look at the world from God's perspective? Do we see our role in God's community? Do we, as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, live a life being ready to encourage others with truth? This is the heart of the gospel. The gospel is not to put people down. Gospel means good news. Do we live a life ready to encourage people with truth? Do we live with expectation? Now, this is the hard one. This is the really, really hard one. Because I, when I speak with people, what I keep hearing is, I really don't know what God's doing in my life, and I think everything's falling apart, and I just can't wait to get to heaven. Do you live your life with expectation? Do you believe that God is a good father? Do you believe that someone who is greater than you is able to take care of you and meet your needs? Do you live according to God's promises when you read the Bible and you see how He has cared for people throughout history? Do you believe that He cares for you? If you're His child, He cares for you. He loves you, which means you can live your life with expectation. You can... Instead of being limited by practicalities and functionality, you can believe that God has a plan to work even through the small things. Because when we look throughout history, it turns out God wasn't always using large churches or large groups of people or even the most mighty. Israel was small and He used them on purpose. Ruth was small. Esther was small. Mordecai was small. Even Abraham was small. Do you think God has an expectation for your life? We put too many limits on ourselves, especially when we talk about spiritual things. It blows me away. How many times I've been at a trustee meeting for the publishing house or I've been working you know, here, there, or the other place. I have a few different hats that I wear. How many limitations Christians are willing to put on themselves? We look at bank statements and we say, well, we can't do that because there's not enough money. Well, we can't do that because we don't have enough people. Well, we can't do that because who's going to show up? I don't know about you all, but I live my life with an expectation that God has a plan. And if He gives me peace about the direction that He wants me to go in, it turns out the money in the bank doesn't matter, the people don't matter, and the ability doesn't matter because I'm not working through my strengths, I'm working through His. You want to know what gives you fuel in ministry? What gives you fuel in pursuing God's will for your life? You believe that there's a God that's guiding you. Do you listen for God? I know there's a lot of points and I put it under a lot of subpoints, and your all eyes are getting glazed over and you're tired of hearing about it and you don't want to look at that dashboard screen one more time. Here's why I put it in acronym form. So that you can go home and you can think about this and you can maybe be like the Bereans. You can open up your Bible and find out if it's the truth. If you're not spending time with the Word of God, the engine's off, you're not going anywhere. If you're spending too much time looking at the Word of God instead of making it practical and applying it to your life, you're working really hard, but you're not going very far. 
Ideally, these things would be balanced. And I don't know what balance looks like for you, but ideally, you put these things together and your RPMs sit around 2,000 or 3,000. Or is it 20,000 and 3,000? I'm not a car guy. I don't really know. But it's somewhere between the 2 and 3 times 10 whatever. And the MPH keeps going up however fast you want to go. And I want to go fast, man. I want to get so close to God, but by the time I get to heaven, there's not a whole lot that needs to change in me. I want to go so fast, man, that when God looks at me, He says that He's proud of me. I want to go so fast that when I spend time with the church, when I spend time with other Christians, and I'm extrapolated from that place sooner than I would have liked, but being submissive to God's desires, my desires get set aside to make room for His. When I get pulled out of a ministry faster than I'd like to get pulled out, I would like to be able to say, like Paul says to the Thessalonians, you became imitators of us and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to go so fast that all my life, no matter what charges get laid against me, I'm able to say, like Paul said to the church in Thessalonica, you know the kind of men we proved to be while we were among you. Do we have the expectation that this is possible? If I get the MPH right, the RPM right, and the fuel tank's full, think we have confidence that we're living in the right spot. I'm listening to God. I am trusting that the Spirit has assumed responsibility to guide me and that I should become accustomed to seeing the hand of the Lord work in all of the things that happen in my life. I tell you the end of this story. We have to move back because I didn't put the slide where it belongs. Here's the end of the story. Paul couldn't go to Ephesus, so he turned and went north. He went through Mycenae. He wanted to keep going north to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow him to do that. So you know what came next? What came next is he went on through Troas, this little area right there. He went to Troas. I don't know how he felt. Felt like he was trying to find God's will and he was obviously sensitive to the Spirit to be able to understand all of these things. You know what happens in Troas? Can I point something out to you? Look at verse 10. and Actually, look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, A vision appeared to Paul in the night. Look at verse 8. After passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. Speaking in the third person, whoever's writing Acts, Luke, he's writing it and he's saying, they went through Mycenae. Look what happens in verse 11 or verse 10. After Paul had seen this vision, immediately, does it say they sought to go into Macedonia? They met Luke in Troas. Luke joined the second missionary journey in Troas. Paul's about to get stoned. They're going to throw rocks at him with the intention of killing him, of ending his life. Unaliving him, as they say on TikTok. But he's got a personal physician traveling with him. You want to know why God tells us no sometimes? You want to know why it's important to set our ambitions aside? Paul has, God has a bigger plan. 
He wants to make sure not only is it the right time, he wants to make sure that we're going to the right place. He wants to make sure that we have the right people with us. Do we surround ourselves with the right people? Do you have a community of believers that you can be open and vulnerable with? I'm not just talking about the people you go to church with. Turns out you can go to church your whole life with people and never open up to them. In fact, some Christians have become experts at being diplomats instead of being Christians. Do you have the right people with you? An Australian proverb, I'm sure you've all heard it before, says if you want to go far, go together. The rest of the proverb is if you want to go fast, go by yourself. The wisdom of age is it's better to go far. Do you have a community around you? You see, it wasn't time for Paul to go to Ephesus. That would come later. There was a need in Europe. And this becomes a strategic stronghold for the gospel that makes it possible for the church to expand to all the regions of the earth the way that it has in our day. By taking the gospel into Europe, this area and this region called Macedonia. Let me point something else out. Whenever we follow God's will in our life, check this out. Look how straight that arrow is. Look at verse 11. Setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage. If you look at the Bible on the back of your map, instead of this expertly devised map that I've prepared for you all, what you'll find is between Antioch, the second Antioch, and Troas, it's a bit of a straight line. But when we read this little portion of Scripture between Acts 16, verse 6 to verse 11, Paul doesn't make a straight line. He makes a little S-curve. He's wandering. He's seeking God's will. He's waiting for what's next. But when he finally finds God's will, when God comes to him in a vision and he tells us to go and he gives us clear direction for what we're to do, he doesn't tell us to make sure there's enough money in the bank. He doesn't tell us to make sure that we've got the right people in place. He tells us to go. And when Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke decide to obey God's will, they have a direct voyage from Troas to Macedonia. There's no wandering, it's a direct voyage. They go exactly where God wants them to go. Here's my prayer for our church. My prayer isn't that our church would become the most popular place in all of Greenwood and all of Arkansas and all of the United States. My prayer isn't that we would never have to worry about what comes next or whether there's a future for the church. At the end of the day, I'm confident that I can simply trust God's word that says that he will not forsake his church. I want us to know what his church is. I don't want to be a people that play church. I don't want to be a room full of diplomats. I don't want to do what we think is right. I don't want to try to please people. I simply want to try and please God. The reason we're coming to the book of 1 Thessalonians is because Paul gives us an example of ministry 
that tells us not to seek to please man, but to please God. He gives us an example to follow. And in fact, he gives us such an example that this church that only had Gentiles, they didn't even have a Jewish background, this group of people are able to become an example to an entire region of the world. My prayer for the church is that we would be so sensitive to the Spirit that we could seek God's will in every moment of our lives. You can't do that if the fuel tank's empty. You can't do that if you're not going anywhere. You can't do that if the engine's off. Ironically, I've given you some practical tips this morning on how to do that. But practical tips won't help you if you never use them. My prayer for the church is that we would be faithful in applying God's truth and precepts to our lives. Let's ask God that we'd be able to do that this morning. <coughs> Father, we come to you recognizing that some things are easier said than done. God, I pray that you would help us to take your truth and your example and that we could apply these things to our life in such a way that it would be evident not only to those around us, but that it would be evident in the peace that we feel, feel as we pursue your will in our lives. God, I pray that you would help us. Help us to be your people as we come to a new year, as we make New Year's resolutions. God, help us not just to make resolutions, but help us to make commitments to you. I get scared this time of year, God. I get scared because so many people are making plans that it almost seems like we make a mockery of who you are and the way that you interact in our lives. God, help us not to make a mockery of the commitments that we make to the Lord. Help us to make these things not small things or trivial things that maybe will happen or maybe won't happen, Lord, but help us to weigh the cost of discipleship. Help us to truly pursue you with everything that we have to make commitments to grow closer to you this year. In Jesus' name we pray.